Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Navem, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. In recent months, the Ukraine has dominated international headlines due to the invasion by Russian troops on February 24th, 2022, under the broad title of Special Military Operation. However, relations between Russia and the West have been at a low point since 2013-14 due to the Euromaidan protests, which focus international attention on Ukraine as a symbol of democratic values and reform, across Eastern Europe and Eurasia. During the protests, the fast-changing, complex story was often framed in simple narratives by the Western media by focusing purely on the dramatic elements such as clashes between protesters and police, attacks on journalists, the death of protesters and meetings of high-level politicians. But as is often the case with mainstream media reports, The nuanced background of events and emerging trends were often overlooked or conveniently glossed over in order to present an oversimplified version of events such as a struggle to choose democracy in Europe over tyranny in Russia. And one of those trends was that in recent years the country's significant democratic gains have been paralleled by a dramatic increase in the activity of radical far-right groups. While ultra-nationalist groups have existed in Ukraine since the 1920s, they now represent a sophisticated and politically influential element of society. Indeed, the Ukraine is far from being a paragon of democratic stability within Eastern Europe, as often portrayed by Western media accounts. Because for the first 20 years of Ukrainian independence, far-right groups were marginalized elements of the socio-political process. But the political landscape within the Ukraine has changed in a relatively short space of time due to the dynamic upheaval created by the events of Euromaidan between 2013 and 14. As such, the main focus of today's episode will be an examination of the ultra-nationalist movement which threatens the future development of Ukraine due to its anti-democratic values, xenophobic propaganda and the use of intimidation and violence against political opponents. In particular, far-right groups pose a threat to various minority populations, undermining their ability to exercise basic freedoms of expression and assembly. But more importantly, ultra-nationalist radicalism undermines the inclusiveness of society which is fundamental to a stable and political economic landscape. Moreover, the very independence of the country is being questioned from an international viewpoint. Prior to the ongoing military conflict of 2022, democratic institutions were not sufficiently stable enough to ensure that the positive changes from the post-Soviet era would continue. The presence of regressive obstacles such as state corruption, lack of transparency in economic and political processes, and the tendency for authorities to willfully neglect legal mechanisms had not dissipated anywhere. Also, the standard of living continued 
to decline compared to smaller ex-Soviet states. In addition, the lack of public confidence in state institutions, as evidenced by large-scale anti-government protests such as the Orange Revolution of 2004 and Euromaidan of 2013 and 14, ultimately leading to the current military conflict of 2022. The fledgling Ukrainian nation remained undecided for almost two and a half decades about its geopolitical future and cultural development attempting to make a choice between the pro-European and pro-Russian vectors. However, since the Euromaidan protests and the outbreak of war in the Donbass region, the balance tipped heavily to the Western Hemisphere as the new project for a future Ukrainian nation eventually took shape in 2014. The Eastern conflict with Russia, which began immediately after the victory of Euromaidan, catalyzed a new Ukrainian identity. The Ukraine's blue and yellow flag acquired symbolic value for a newly mobilized nation as Ukrainian citizens began shedding blood and dying for it. The urban landscape became dominated by blue-yellow ribbons, clothing, memorabilia and other forms of symbology to mark the genesis of a new Ukrainian nation imbued with European values. Since 2014, the war in eastern Ukraine has provided newfound social legitimacy to ultra-nationalist groups, beginning with unprecedented levels of sophistication, funding, recruitment, and organizational capacity. And this heightened visible profile has attracted new recruits from the youth who have come of age in a new era of war patriotism. Many young people have turned to far-right paramilitary groups in search of new identity, seeing membership as offering opportunities to defend the Ukrainian homeland against internal enemies. And so it's in this context that it becomes necessary to understand what place ultra-nationalism occupies in Ukrainian social and political life, and how this position has changed over time. It's also necessary to examine how far the ultra-nationalist agenda has influenced the formation of a new Ukrainian identity. So let's begin by examining the main players of the Ukrainian ultranationalist scene since 1991. In post-1991 Ukraine, the various far-right parties have been well organized with strong ideological appeal but always remained electorally weak. In the contemporary political spectrum of Ukraine, political parties rarely survive more than one voting cycle. And during the election year of 2019, the political landscape changed dramatically as voters chose a political outsider, Volodymyr Zelensky, to run the country. He won 73% of the electoral vote, representing 24 out of 25 regions, an unprecedented result for a country historically troubled by an east-west electoral divide. And by comparison, Ukraine's far right had little to celebrate because their candidate, Ruslan Koshulinsky, who represented a united nationalist bloc, won only 2.3% of the vote. At a glance, this appears to be a dismal failure because it falls short of the 5% electoral threshold required to get into Parliament. However, the far-right equation is much more complex than how it fares at the ballot box, especially as it continues to change and adapt its methods of communication. That's because Ukraine's far right has strong organizational power elsewhere. Outside of parliament, it has ideologically committed activists which are represented in street paramilitaries. They have a high mobilization capacity on the streets, which equates to more resources for 
future political violence. And the seeds of Ukraine's ultra-nationalism began to take root in the late 1980s and has given rise to a multitude of groupings and alliances. There are three major representatives. The first is Ukrainian National Assembly, Ukrainian National Self-Defense, better known under its acronym UNA UNSO. This political party is the oldest significant ultra-nationalist grouping in post-Soviet Ukraine, consisting of two main factions, a political party, UNA, and a semi-official paramilitary unit for direct political action, UNSO. The latter organization, UNSO, has involvement in various anti-Russian military activities and also it has confronted separatist and ethnic minority organizations in Ukraine throughout the 1990s. And the second representative is Svoboda, or Freedom Party. Svoboda was established on October the 13th, 1991, in Lviv under the name Social National Party of Ukraine, or SNPU. After renaming in 2004, the SNPU elected Ole Tianibok as its new chairman. Svoboda began to rise to national prominence soon after pro-Russian politician Viktor Yanukovych won the presidential elections in 2010. In this context, Svoboda became the most visible ultra-nationalist grouping organizing public action against Viktor Yanukovych's ruling party of regions and openly supporting Ukrainian language and culture issues. However, Svoboda's Popularity gradually waned, losing its representatives in the Ukrainian government during the autumn 2014 parliamentary elections. And subsequently, it once again became an opposition party with much of its political presence situated in the eastern Galician region and local parliaments. And the third representative is the Azov movement and National Corps. After the Euromaidan revolution, the Azov movement, which grew out of a volunteer battalion that was first stationed at the Sea of Azov in 2014, emerged as a high-profile, multidimensional political phenomenon of Ukraine's post-revolutionary landscape. Since summer 2014, the Azov movement has become a prominent right-wing force in Ukraine, even rivaling the Svoboda party. Various organizations and branches of the Azov movement have been estimated to comfortably mobilize 20,000 members across Ukraine. Beletsky's previously obscure group soon came to national prominence. The Azov battalion played a major role in the liberation of the key industrial city of Mariupol from Russian-backed separatists during the summer of 2014. By the autumn of 2014, the battalion was incorporated as a regular military unit of the National Guard called the Azov Regiment under the auspices of Ukraine's Ministry of the Interior, and it is now considered to be one of Ukraine's most highly distinguished armed units. In 2015, veterans and volunteers of the regiment created the Azov Civil Corps and began to expand their political presence into a multifaceted social movement. In 2016, Beletsky formed the political party National Corps, drawing membership from the Azov Civil Corps and veterans of the Azov Battalion and the regiment. Azov is now a multi-dimensional socio-political movement that is developing in a variety of directions, including youth corps, engineering corps, sports divisions, MMA fighting and literary clubs, among other sub-organizations and branches of the Azov movement. The various sub-movements of the Azov movement share common stances on political and social issues 
and cooperate extensively with each other. Despite officially allying itself with Svoboda and other ultra-national groups since 2016, the Azov movement remains an ideologically and institutionally unique phenomenon within Ukraine's ultra-nationalist political spectrum. For instance, it comprises branches that espouse views which are untypical of the traditional Ukrainian far-right. This includes advocating non-Christian viewpoints such as paganism. The Azov Regiment is also notorious for openly expressing white supremacist and anti-Semitic viewpoints of its members. In August 2015, Andrei Bilecki was quoted by the UK newspaper The Telegraph that, quote, the historic mission of our nation in this critical moment is to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival, a crusade against the Semite-led Untermenschen, end quote. And in recent years, the Azov Battalion has come under greater scrutiny because of reports it has been directly armed by Western powers, including the United States, Canada and the UK. For instance, the 2016 Consolidated Appropriations Act signed into law by then US President Barack Obama in 2015 did not include a previous ban against the funding of the Azov Regiment. The 2016 Act included a section entitled Ukraine Security Assistant Initiative, which appropriated 250 million US dollars to provide training, equipment, lethal weapons of a defensive nature, and intelligence to the military and national security forces of Ukraine. Later in 2018, a $1.3 trillion omnibus spending bill was signed into law, clearly stipulating that none of the funds made available by this act may be used to provide arms, training or other assistance to the Azov Battalion. And it should also be noted that Azov isn't the only ultra-nationalist group to receive Western affirmation. In December 2014, Amnesty International accused the Dunipro-1 battalion of potential war crimes, including, quote, using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare. And six months later, Senator John McCain visited and praised this battalion. Furthermore, according to a Yahoo News article dated 13th January 2022, the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, has been secretly training forces for Ukraine since 2015. It administered a secret training program in the US for elite Ukrainian special operation forces and other intelligence personnel. And according to the article, the covert program run by paramilitaries working for the CIA was established by the Obama administration after Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. And it was expanded under the Trump administration and further enhanced by the current Biden administration. A former senior intelligence official put it more bluntly, saying that the program has taught the Ukrainians how to kill Russians. And so the fourth major representative of Ukrainian ultranationalism is the right sector. This group was originally formed in late 2013 during the early Euromaidan protests as an umbrella organization of several political and paramilitary far-right groups. It became a serious contender to the Svoboda Party and was catapulted to international prominence during the events of January-February 2014 when its then-leader, Dmitry Yarosh, took public responsibility for clashes with government forces in central Kiev, escalating the pace of anti-government protests. With the onset of the war in eastern Ukraine, the right sector formed the Volunteer Ukrainian Corps, 
or DUK, an irregular military unit which became a magnet for other small armed units which were emerging across Ukraine. The right sector has remained a registered party and in recent years has cooperated closely with Svoboda, the National Corps and other right-wing affiliations. So now that we have an understanding of the structure of ultra-nationalism at a political level within Ukraine, the next area to consider is the level of political influence wielded by far-right groups in Ukraine. In electoral politics, Svoboda is considered the most developed political arm of Ukraine's ultra-nationalists. In October 2012, it entered the Ukraine parliament with 10.44% of the votes, and this remains to date the best electoral result for a ultra-nationalist organization in post-1991 Ukrainian history. Euromaidan and the outbreak of war with Russia in 2014 gave further momentum and mainstream legitimacy to the ultra-nationalist cause, driving large numbers of Ukrainians to support more extreme measures under the banner of patriotism to safeguard the country's independence and security. Electoral support for Svoboda and other openly nationalist political parties waned in the years that followed. Svoboda took only 4.5% of the vote in 2014, and a right-wing coalition of parties led by Svoboda failed to enter parliament in 2019 with only 2.15% of the vote. And a further reason for the far-right's poor electoral showing was that more mainstream parties and politicians such as Petro Poroshenko adopted some of the nationalistic rhetoric that was once solely the preserve of the far right. Poroshenko's campaign in 2019 was based on militant rhetoric appearing on his billboard such as Army Language Faith, which targeted the chances of ultra-nationalist candidates in the elections. Poroshenko effectively presented himself as the defender of the Ukrainian national project by promoting an exclusivist brand of patriotism that drew large support from both moderate and radical segments of society. He focused on severe legal measures to preserve Ukrainian identity and also curtail the rights of the country's minority groups. More worryingly, Ukraine's far-right groups are not simply satisfied with ideology alone. Their activities are supported by a variety of commercial and political operations which regularly hire far-right groups as paid thugs. This includes the Ukrainian government itself, as evidenced by the integration of Azov into the Ukrainian armed forces. Moreover, violence and intimidation by ultranationalist groups has taken place with near-total impunity, as Ukrainian law enforcement has rarely taken meaningful action to hold perpetrators accountable. This is largely due to a lack of political will among policymakers and the Ukrainian public to take a stand on this issue, especially in the context of the ongoing war. This failure of political will is complex and stems from many sources, ranging from genuine popular support for these groups as defenders of Ukrainian identity, to powerful interest groups who stand to gain from the thriving industry of far-right thuggery. In addition, a weak legal framework to combat Hate violence compounds the problem. Also, existing articles in the criminal code do not provide prosecutors with the legal tools to hold perpetrators accountable for such violence because they are inconsistent with international standards. Interestingly, the point just mentioned regarding threatened national identity has been used on innumerable occasions throughout history to justify violence, intimidation and bloodshed. We only have to look at European history in the aftermath of World War I to see how 
ethnocentric territorial disputes led to ultimate continental ruin. But the key factor here is the level of popular support received by ultranationalist groups. And this will be addressed in the next section by putting forward three key questions which help to explain the prevalence of Ukrainian nationalism as a diverse phenomenon. The first key question is, what are the historical origins of nationalist identity in Ukraine? Similar to other national movements, Ukraine has both radical extremist and liberal influences present within it. Its origins can be traced to the middle of the 19th century after other national movements in Eastern Europe had already begun to establish themselves and it owes much to their influence. On the surface, it might appear as if Ukrainian nationalism developed as an underground movement during the Soviet era over a broad 70-year period. However, it was ethno-cultural identity that was a key factor dominating the Ukrainian national project. Also, the experience of Ukraine as a republic within the USSR simply served to reinforce the Ukrainian national identity. Interestingly, Although the Soviet Union brutally crushed all forms of political allegiance, such as class representation, nationalist ideology or political dissent, equally at the same time, the authorities were keen to promote practices which emphasised the ethno-national identity of its citizens. And by the early 20th century, many national movements were already developed by the time the republics of the USSR were being formed and the Soviet authorities focused on a criteria of ethno-national identity to further the aspirations of these movements, especially where it was underdeveloped. The USSR government institutionalized ethno-nationality as a tool to monitor its population and to maintain the spatial configuration of its political power. Indeed, after much consultation with Soviet ethnographers, it was native language that became the major criteria for determining affiliation to a nation. Practices of ethno-cultural identity were combined with the communal ideology of the new Soviet citizen. But despite advocating the identity of the new Soviet person, the Soviet authorities were actively engaged in a systematic development of national cultures, which would be fused with the communal ideology of the new Soviet citizen, eventually forming a new brand of Soviet culture. This was often promoted through an elite group of intellectuals via artistic or social pursuits. And so after the collapse of the USSR, the post-Soviet sphere of influence was divided into social groups based on their ethno-national background. This occurred not only in the former Soviet republics, but in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe too. For example, in Romania or in the republics of former Yugoslavia, the nationalist ideology expressed as Ethnicity exerted a major influence on the political process. Identity problems began to be manifest as key rallying points because of the political vacuum created by the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Subsequently, these ethnic divisions became more important than the actual issue of establishing democratic institutions. And Ukraine was no exception to this sequence of events. State politics since Ukraine's independence were always aimed at maintaining the culture and language of Ukrainian traditions while simultaneously emphasizing the ethno-national differences between Ukraine and Russia. Russia served as the convenient other in this particular situation and contemporary Ukrainian national identity has been formulated in opposition to it. 
And this concept of otherness is critical to understanding how majority and minority identities are constructed and controlled through political power. This analysis also provides a useful gateway to the second key question, which is why are the dividing lines between the Russian and Ukrainian outlook so pronounced? A key difference that separates the different camps of Russian and Ukrainian nationalism is their stance toward Europe and the West. Most Ukrainian nationalists, including many of the more radical ones, are decidedly pro-European, and much of the Ukrainian moderate nationalism is overtly pro-Western. In contrast, most Russian nationalists tend to be anti-Western, especially anti-American, and some sections are partly or fully anti-European. But this division is far more complex than it appears at first glance because there are elements within both moderate and radical Russian nationalists, including those groups with racist ideologies, who see Russia as belonging to a wider European or Western culture, which is perceived to be inherently Christian, white and of Nordic descent. As such, these Russian nationalists are often pro-Ukraine because they see the Ukraine as a legitimate and equal partner in the international arena of Aryan nations. That said, the majority of Russian nationalists view Russia as a distinct orthodox and or Eurasian civilization that is separate from or even opposite to the West. And in contrast, Ukrainian nationalists lean towards the West rather than towards Russia or other countries to its east with the possible exception of Georgia, which is often seen as a close ally of Ukraine. Interestingly, though, virtually all nationalist ideologies, whether Russian or Ukrainian, are to some degree or another ethnocentric, patriarchal, anti-individual and anti-liberal due to commonalities based on a traditionalist or conservative outlook. Hence, they tend to be similarly structured and have potential points of overlap that can lead to transnational cooperation or mutual agreement. Yet Russian and Ukrainian nationalist worldviews are entirely different, not only in their ideological and philosophical viewpoints, but there exists a fundamental conflict regarding their broader geopolitical outlook and territorial aspirations. Many Russian nationalists do not respect Ukraine's borders or independence aspirations. They are also highly skeptical towards Western civilization and to a certain extent, the idea of pan-Europeanism. And on the other hand, there are some Ukrainian nationalists who, especially after the events of 2014, claim southern parts of the Russian Federation for the Ukraine, which helps to explain the animosity between Russian and Ukrainian nationalists. And to explain these divisions in greater detail, in the next section, I will briefly review the history of the radical form of Ukrainian nationalism by paying special attention to the geopolitical circumstances which form this movement. And so at this point we can now introduce our third key question. What are the ideological origins of ultranationalism in Ukraine? To begin we need to go back to the early 20th century because it was World War I which highlighted the crisis of traditional imperial values. It completely rearranged the political order in Europe, dissolving empires and leading to the foundation of new states many of which were not prepared to be ruled democratically. It also left states such as Germany and Hungary with the feeling of having lost parts of their national territories and other national communities such as the Slovaks, Croats and Ukrainians without a state. These political and cultural changes led to the emergence of a new authoritarian, ultra-nationalist and militaristic 
movement with radical socialist roots. It became known as fascism after its embodiment via the Italian fascists. From the very beginning, fascism was a transnational movement by adapting to the particular cultural, social and political situations in respective national states and also stateless national communities. Nevertheless, because Soviet policies prevented the dissemination of fascism in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, the majority of all Ukrainians were not exposed to fascist ideology and knew fascism only as a demonized concept through Soviet propaganda. Indeed, the radical form of Ukrainian nationalism, which emerged post-World War I, actually developed from the more moderate pre-1918 Ukrainian nationalism. The latter version was influenced by socialist ideals and did not view mass violence as a means of achieving political goals. Therefore, it was not overtly hostile to ethnic minorities such as Jews and Poles. However, the real catalyst was the experience of World War I and the failure to establish an independent Ukrainian state. This lasting experience soon coincided with a receptive environment towards racist and anti-Semitic discourses, which transformed this nationalism into a unique East-Central European fascist movement. So let's now examine the broader influence of fascism on Ukrainian nationalism. Firstly, fascism is one of the most complex and most contested phenomena of 20th century history. Fundamentally, it is a form of political ideology, but it's also very difficult to find a universal definition. The first manifestations of fascism occurred in Europe during the 1920s and 30s in the aftermath of World War I. The most notorious examples of fascist governments being Adolf Hitler in Germany, Benito Mussolini in Italy and Francisco Franco in Spain. Also, there are many definitions of fascism because some observers describe it as a set of political actions, a political philosophy or even a mass movement. Most definitions agree that fascism is authoritarian and promotes nationalism at all costs, but its basic characteristics are still a matter of debate. And one useful definition is from Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale University. In his 2020 book, How Fascism Works, he describes it thus, quote, it is based on an ethnic division between us and them, an extreme ethno-nationalism. It's based on nostalgia for a mythic past, typically in which members of the chosen ethnic group had an empire and it represents the present as loss of that great empire that natural standpoint in which members of this ethnic group dominated their environment militarily, politically and culturally, end quote. To understand Ukrainian nationalism in the context of fascist studies, it's important to remember that fascist movements in East Central Europe, such as the Halinka or Slovak People's Party, the Croatian Ustasa and Iron Guard in Romania all developed different forms of fascism compared to other regimes that controlled industrial, urban and powerful states such as Italy or Germany. Fascism in East Central European states and also stateless ethnic communities came about in different circumstances compared to states such as Germany or Italy. Let's now examine these specific conditions from a historical and geopolitical perspective. Ultra-right-wing ideology in Ukraine draws on nationalist traditions in West Ukraine that evolved during the interwar period when the Ukrainians 
first fought Polish and then Bolshevik domination led by the Ukrainian Armed Organization or UVO in 1920. And from 1929, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists or OUN. Both espouse terror, ethnocentrism, authoritarianism, fascism, and what they called integral nationalism, as advocated by Dmitry Dontsov, a Ukrainian nationalist writer and political thinker whose radical ideas were a major influence on the OUN. The nature of Ukrainian radical nationalism was therefore determined by both European fascist discourses and the complicated history of Ukrainians, for whom the OUN wanted to establish a separate fascist state. In the 19th century, Ukrainians, or those people who considered themselves to be of Ukrainian identity, lived between two empires. Around 80% were subjects of the Russian Empire and about 20% lived in eastern Galicia and Bukovina, which then belonged to the Habsburg Empire. The policy of Russification in Russian Ukraine, especially in the last three decades of the 19th century, prevented the expansion of Ukrainian nationalism in this territory. Many Eastern Ukrainians understood Ukraine to be a region of Russia and thought themselves to be Russian kinsmen. Hostility to Russia did not make sense to them, but it made much more sense to the small group of nationally educated Ukrainians living in Eastern Galicia, where they benefited from the liberal policy of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And during the interwar period, extreme Ukrainian nationalism did not develop in the Soviet Union, which remained unaffected by fascism, but thrived in the, the territory of Eastern Galicia of the Habsburg Empire. And it was here in Eastern Galicia where the epicenter of revolutionary ultra-nationalist activism took hold. Although Ukrainians during and after the First World War proclaimed a Ukrainian state in Kiev as the center of Ukraine and another state in Lviv as the center of Western Ukraine. They did not succeed in keeping either of them. These states were not recognized by the Treaty of Versailles or by neighboring countries, particularly the Second Polish Republic and the Soviet Union, which subsequently claimed those same territories. And as a result of various treaties signed after the First World War, Around 26 million Ukrainians lived in Soviet Ukraine, roughly 5 million in Poland, half million in the Czechoslovak Republic, and 800,000 people in Greater Romania. So in 1920, a group of Ukrainian veterans of the First World War, frustrated by the geopolitical status quo, founded the Ukrainian military organization UVO in Prague. The UVO, however, did not become a mass political movement, but rather a small-scale terrorist organization. But the situation changed in the late 1920s as the first Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists convened in Vienna in January 1929. Subsequently, the leadership of the UVO, in cooperation with other nationalist politicians, founded the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or OUN, in the course of amalgamation, the League of Ukrainian Fascists, who were credited with the Ukrainian fascist salute, Glory to Ukraine, also entered the OUN, which adopted the salute and other fascist rituals and mystic symbolism. And some of their leading representatives were Stefan Bandera, Yaroslav Stetsko, Stefan Lenkavsky, and Roman Shukievich. 
And it was this younger generation based in the regions of Galicia and Volhynia, which soon be began to control the executive policies of the OUN. Although both generations had similar attitudes to fascism and anti-Semitism, the younger generation were more inclined to use terror and violence. Consequently, different expectations and outlooks led to a rift between the younger and older generations. And so in 1940, the OUN split into a moderate OUNM, followers of Andrei Melnik, and a radical group, OUNB, followers of Stefan Bandera. The latter's tactical collaboration with the Nazis led to the total rejection of their ideology in the eastern and southern regions of Ukraine. During the Soviet era, emigre leaders of the OUNB based in Munich softened the tone of the radicalism but continued lobbying for an independent Ukraine. The main task of the UVO and OUN was to liberate the Ukrainian territories and to establish a new independent Ukrainian state. The first commandment of the Decalogue of a Ukrainian Nationalist drafted in 1929 by the OUN member Stefan Lenkovsky said, quote, attain a Ukrainian state or die in the struggle for it, end quote. To alter the geopolitical situation and establish such a state, Ukrainians looked for partners and waited for war or conflict involving the so-called occupiers of Ukraine, in particular Poland and the Soviet Union. The UVO and OUN regarded Nazi Germany as their most important ally because no other European state was as interested in changing the status quo of the geopolitical order as Germany was. Alliance with Germany and other fascist movements allowed the OUN to appear as a serious political movement that could liberate Ukraine. And especially in the final years before the end of World War II, the OUN won more and more supporters among younger Ukrainians in Poland. Also due to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which was a non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union that enabled the two powers to partition Poland, almost all Ukrainian territories were incorporated into the Soviet part of Ukraine after the start of the Second World War. And at this point, many Ukrainian nationalists left Ukraine to collaborate with the Nazis, in particular the Abwehr or German military intelligence. Meanwhile, the OUNB began work on the Ukrainian National Revolution, which aimed to establish a Ukrainian state in the hope that the Nazis would accept it, as they had done previously by accepting Slovakia in March 1939 and Croatia in April 1941. But the Nazi authorities had no plans to establish a Ukrainian or any other collaborative state in the territories released after the German attack on the Soviet Union on 22nd June 1941. Nevertheless, the OUNB went ahead and proclaimed Ukrainian statehood on 30th of June 1941 in Lviv. So let's now look at an another area of radicalism within the Ukrainian nationalist tradition, which is the issue of racial anthropology and eugenics. Eugenics and race played major roles in Ukrainian interwar nationalism, yet remain largely unstudied. Racism in the context of Ukrainian ultra-nationalism was related to the idea of an independent Ukraine. Racist thinkers believe that Ukraine should be an independent state because it was inhabited by a unique race that needed statehood to further its ambitions. The Ukrainian nationalists' understanding of the racial makeup of their imagined community was contradictory, to say the least, because 
they struggled to reconcile a desire for racial purity with the realities of the heterogeneous populations already inhabiting the territories which they sought to include in their intended state project. The turn to the right in 1940 through the OUNB placed a greater emphasis on race and eugenics in relation to Ukrainian ultranationalism from 1936 onwards. In 1941, the OUNB had developed a project for eugenic engineering for their aborted state, which had been declared in Lviv. Racial concepts of the Ukrainian community figured prominently well into the Cold War era, gaining a new realization and meaning in an emigre community which had been dispersed across several countries. And the next area of extremist thought within the Ukrainian nationalist tradition is anti-Semitism. Ukrainian nationalists combined a modern racialized concept of anti-Semitism with the older traditional Ukrainian anti-Semitism, which was based on religious prejudice and pre-modern economic, social and political circumstances. The racist anti-Semitism influenced Ukrainian nationalism during the late 1920s to 1930s and was borrowed heavily from the ideology of the German national socialists. The traditional form of Ukrainian anti-Semitism was less aggressive, but deeply rooted in Ukrainian national culture, including the national literature. For instance, the Ukrainian national poet and writer Taras Shevchenko portrayed Jews in his poem Hidiamaki as the agents of Polish landowners and anyone who killed Jews as national heroes. And this was not an exception, but rather a common understanding of the relationship between Jews and Ukrainians which was familiar to most members of the UVO, OUN and UPA. And in their publications, they portrayed the Jews as agents of the Polish landlords and supporters of Polish and Russian nationalism in Ukraine. Between 1918 and 1921, 50,000 to 60,000 Jews were killed in numerous pogroms in central and eastern Ukraine by the troops of the Ukrainian People's Republic the Russian White Army, anarchist peasant pans, and local Ukrainians. Although pogroms did not take place in Western Ukraine, their aftermath radicalized the attitude of the Ukrainian nationalists towards the Jews and made anti-Semitism into one of the most significant cornerstones of Ukrainian nationalism. So now that we have a better understanding of the ideological and historical origins of the far right in Ukraine, I'd like to focus on the legacy of the OUN by asking to what extent has modern Ukrainian ultranationalism inherited its identity by resurrecting the past? Since the Euromaidan protests between 2013 to 2014, far-right groups in Ukraine such as Azov have made their physical presence felt on the political stage and have been quick to claim OUN lineage, while Russian state media has portrayed them as the main drivers of Ukrainian politics. Equally, Svoboda has repeatedly asserted that it was the nationalist ideal which revitalized the modern Ukrainian state, and henceforth its goal was to complete its nationalist mission. Indeed, both these groups have been highly active in shaping the national discussion on how to form a new post-Maidan Ukrainian identity through mediums such as a physical protest, online discussion and active recruiting to their nationalist organisations. And when we compare aspects of Azov to the hallmarks of 20th century fascism, it reveals deep similarities that simply cannot be overlooked because modern ultranationalism and its violence could derail the 
present Zelensky government's efforts to establish itself as a democratic European state. And in the final section of this episode, I'd like to examine how the modern Ukrainian nationalist movement has attempted to legitimize key features of its fascist past. So let's begin with the infiltration of symbolism. The use of controversial symbolism by the Azov movement compounds its already fragile reputation as a neo-Nazi group. Azov's insignia is very similar in appearance to the Nazi Wolfsangle, but the group strenuously denies any claims of a link to neo-Nazis, arguing it is an amalgam of the letters N and I representing the slogan National Idea. However, the movement's fondness for symbolism, open arm salutes and the presence of swastikas at its events can be described as definitely sympathetic to Nazi ideals, to say the least. Also, there is the red and black flag belonging to the Ukrainian Surgeon Army, UPA, which is present at many Azov rallies. Recently, even Canada's Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, courted controversy in a debate over this flag when she appeared at a rally in support of Ukraine in Toronto on February 28, 2022. She later tweeted a photo with the caption, We stand united, we stand with Ukraine. But in the photo, Freeland is shown holding a section of a black and red scarf bearing the words, Glory to Ukraine, written in Ukrainian. And these tendencies by Azov members to use Nazi-style symbols is seen by many observers as a clear indication of their anti-Semitic beliefs, in addition to individual fighters bragging openly of being neo-Nazi members. And these reports have been well documented by mainstream outlets, including USA Today, The Daily Beast, The Daily Telegraph and Haaretz News. Furthermore, when young people from various right-wing groups attended public protests during Euromaidan, there was heavy chanting of glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes. Historically, this slogan was a traditional OUN greeting. This phrase was used extensively in the streets of Ukraine in 2014, not only by radical extremists, but also by the more respectable politicians of the National Democratic camp, in particular President Viktor Yushchenko, who relied heavily on the patriotic politics of national memory during his term in office between 2005 to 2010. The slogan, glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes, became widespread during Euromaidan. Almost all public speeches began and ended with these words. People greeted and said goodbye to each other using this expression. Other catchphrases such as glory to the nation and Ukraine above all transcended the narrow parameters of the radical nationalism representing a more moderate use of speech. Moreover, during Viktor Yushchenko's tenure as president, the episodes of cooperation between the leadership of the OUN and Nazi Germany were ignored or justified in official memory policy. The scale of ethnic cleansing against Poles by the UPA was understated, while special attention was given to the armed struggle between the UPA and the Soviet Union. Also, Viktor Yushchenko, through his power of presidential decree, conferred the title of Hero of Ukraine on Stefan Bandera and Roman Shukievich, commander of the UPA. But under the next president, Viktor Yanukovych, the court ruled that these decrees were illegal. If the slogan, Glory to Ukraine, was common to the entire Ukrainian national patriotic spectrum, from moderate liberals to street extremists, other formulations marked a specifically ultra-right tone, and these included glory to the nation, death to the enemies, and Ukraine is above all, 
which were used extensively during the Euromaidan protests and were ex exclusively used by the OUN during the era of armed struggle and now became part of the language of protest for ultra-nationalist radicals. In Ukraine, this process of appropriation by society of a symbolic language previously limited to marginal groups was perceived as entirely natural and did not meet any resistance. For example, the Maidan taught Ukrainians the tradition of collective performance of the national anthem, which previously was rarely performed at political events. And in the next section, I'd like to examine the use of paramilitary forces within Ukrainian ultranationalism. In the post-Maidan era, Ukraine is the world's only nation to have a ultra-right-wing unit within its armed forces. In the autumn of 2014, Azov was incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard, while concurrently being accused of human rights abuses, including torture by Human Rights Watch and the United Nations. Azov's neo-Nazi connections have been confirmed by multiple Western outlets, despite its continuous denials. For instance, the New York Times called the battalion openly neo-Nazi. Azov also founded the National Drutsina, also known as the National Militia, in January 2018 as a street patrol and paramilitary group separate from the state, pledging to restore Ukrainian order to the streets. Despite its attempts to become more mainstream, multiple incidences of violence and hatred connected to the movement can be noted, including violence towards the LGBT community, liberals, Roma community and anti-fascists. Particularly concerning is the assertion that Azov is attempting to transform Ukraine into a hub for transnational white supremacy by actively recruiting neo-Nazis from various international countries. For example, in October 2018, the FBI arrested four California white supremacists who had allegedly received training from Azov. And this is a classic example of what's known as blowback, where the US support of radicals abroad ricochets to hit America in his backyard. And in the next section, let's now turn to how the Ukrainian state has legitimized the glorification of Nazi collaborators. The influence of Ukraine's far right extends much further than military forces and the presence of street gangs because it has also muscled into the post-Maidan government to impose an ultra-nationalist culture over the country. In 2015, the Ukrainian parliament passed legislation making the OUN and the UPA national heroes of Ukraine and made it a criminal offence to deny their heroism. Yet both of these organisations collaborated with Nazi Germany to carry out ethnic cleansing and mass murder. Also, the government-funded Ukrainian Institute of National Memory has legitimised the whitewashing of Nazi collaborators. For example, the Ukrainian parliament featured an exhibit commemorating the OUN's 1941 proclamation of cooperation with the Third Reich. Torchlit marches in honour of OUN UPA leaders such as Stefan Bandera and Roman Shukievich are now a regular feature of the post-Maidan Ukraine. The Ukraine government's official embrace of Nazi collaboration is extremely divisive considering the OUN and UPA are reviled in the regions of eastern Ukraine. And as a direct consequence, this celebration of Nazi collaborators has been accompanied by a steep rise in anti-Semitic activity in Ukraine. While there has been no overt anti-Semitic violence linked directly to nationalist groups such as Azov, there is a growing trend of intolerance which has been spread mainly through online platforms 
and youth discussion forums aimed at indoctrination. For instance, during a January 2017 march honouring OUN leader Stefan Bandera, chants of Jews out were clearly made by thousands of participants. And following a three-day festival celebrating the life of UPA leader Shukievich during the summer of 2017, a synagogue was firebombed. Inevitably, this trend of government-sponsored glorification of Holocaust perpetrators has proliferated in the post-Maidan era, providing a green light for other forms of anti-Semitism, such as the presence of swastikas and SS rooms on city streets, death threats and vandalism of Holocaust memorials, Jewish centers, cemeteries and places of worship. And other examples of state-sponsored Nazi revisionism in Ukraine include the banning of books, for instance. Ukraine's State Committee for Television and Radio Broadcasting has enforced the glorification of Ukraine's new heroes by banning anti-Ukrainian literature that does not conform to the government narrative. This ideological censorship includes acclaimed books by Western authors. In January 2018, for instance, Ukraine made international headlines by banning the 1999 book Stalingrad by award-winning British historian Anthony Beaver because it contained a single paragraph about a Ukrainian unit which massacred 90 Jewish children during World War II. There is also the organised use of programmes. The far right has been emboldened by its struggle with Russia and the widespread acceptance in Ukraine of a radical and intolerant brand of patriotism, allowing these groups to target perceived internal threats and the so-called impure elements of society. This list includes, for instance, Roma, LGBT groups and religious and linguistic minorities that do not fit with the highly selective vision of traditional Ukrainian identity. Their methods range from intimidation, brutal violence and aggressive thuggery to prevent the LGBT community from using public spaces such as the annual equality marches. In addition, a wave of anti-Roma programs have swept through Ukraine in recent years. Footage from the programs evokes sickening memories of the 1930s where armed thugs are seen attacking women and children while raising their camps. So let's now wrap up with some concluding remarks. In the aftermath of Ukraine independence, which followed the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, right-wing extremism and ultranationalism expressed itself in slogans such as Ukraine for the Ukrainians. But this was never an innate part of mainstream politics in Ukraine. However, two decades of faltering economic and social reforms led to a rapid fragmentation of the democratic process, a clear sense of disenfranchisement from the electorate due to a lack of trust in the authorities and a concurrent strengthening of the ultra-conservative far-right. And as is so often the case in European politics, the background to the rise of right-wing extremism is grounded in certain harsh realities. And these include slow progress in establishing a system of robust democratic rules, the absence of a state founded on the rule of law and a robust functioning economy. Inevitably, the political and economic perils of such an environment include an absence of human rights, reduced living standards and a lack of market competition, because most wealth and resources are still concentrated in the hands of an established oligarchic class structure. Indeed, the gap between the rich and poor has multiplied over three decades of transition. In addition, there are other ominous democratic factors such as a sharp fall in life expectancy, low birth rates and mass migration abroad for economic motives, 
which together have contributed to a critical decline in the size of Ukraine's population, which has not been addressed by any coherent demographic or migration policy. Indeed, it is estimated that by 2050, Ukraine will have lost 36% of its population. And added to the country's economic and demographic woes is political turmoil, the imprisonment of opposition leaders, attempts to silence freedom of speech and endemic corruption, not to mention the untold economic devastation from the present war with Russia. All of these factors combined have provided fertile ground for right-wing extremism. In an article entitled, Nationalism is Exactly What Ukraine Needs, published in the New Republic on May 12, 2014, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Anne Applebaum argues that democracy fails when citizens no longer believe their country is worth fighting for. However, any reader of 20th century European history will remark that every version of nationalism always carries with it a dark side. We only have to access reports from Amnesty International and the OSCE, Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which have reported extensively on war crimes and human rights violations carried out by Ukrainian security forces, including gender-based violence, homophobic attacks and attacks on journalists and human rights advocates. We are also reminded of the cost of complicit blindness by Western powers as they continue to arm Ukraine despite a rapid slide towards intolerance and catastrophic economic destruction. The continued policy of successive US administrations to arm and train ultra-nationalist groups in Ukraine has led the same groups to consolidate military power in an already unstable nation. Furthermore, the West backing of the Maidan uprising, along with the billions of US dollars which have been channeled to the post-Maidan Ukrainian government, make it abundantly clear that since 2014, the United States and its NATO allies have been resolutely committed to completion of their latest democracy-spreading project. But more worryingly, the ongoing alliance with ultra-nationalists in Ukraine is a thinly veiled strategy of my enemy's enemy is my friend. But we only have to look at recent failed interventions by the US and its allies, such as Iraq, Afghanistan and Libya, to realise that the ramifications of such misguided policies will cause ripple effects far beyond Ukraine. It also sends a clear green light that the United States is ready to tolerate the influence of ultra-nationalism in Ukraine by accepting the following neo-Nazi-style gang thuggery, armed military units of ultra-nationalists vying to enter the ranks of NATO, or possibly the attacks on LGBT, Roma and other ethnic minorities. Perhaps this was the much vaunted revolution of dignity opined by Western policymakers during Euromaidan. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company today. And as always, I'll see you next time, Wednesdays at 9am Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.